0: Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation and Noah's Flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. It's good to see you all here. Uh, and we've already got people tuning in and watching, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, we're actually, well, I'm personally, am broadcasting from a slightly different uh, place than normal. Um, I'm broadcasting in our home of our museums project, which is uh, very exciting because we're going to actually be able to take you around and show you uh, a few little things that are actually on display here. Um, now the other problem with that is we're not sure how well my uh, stream is or how um good the connection is over here until we've got uh, better wi-fi so we'll see how it goes today but john how are how are you doing with us today
1: well upside down as usual compared to you joseph uh, way down here down under um we've had a very busy week at jurassic ark and our outdoor museum and high mm-hmm. school students and finding all sorts of things and preaching tomorrow or sorry sunday well that is tomorrow however i I get time confused when i'm broadcasting with you on a very interesting topic because you know the covid issue people are very frustrated with government seeking to grab power so somebody said will you preach on when is it right for a government uh for christians to disobey government so
0: (laughs) yeah that's uh That's an interesting topic. That's a pretty deep topic. Well, I'll certainly be praying for you, um, and hopefully others will. Right. We're going to start with scripture, which is always a good place to start. But basically, to give people an idea of what we're going to do, we're talking about new finds in creation research. We'll give you a little bit of a show around of some of our brilliant collection, museum collection, and also talk a little bit about why we actually have a museum collection in the first place. Why do we put stuff like this on display? And then we will deal with some questions. We've had lots of questions come in over the last few streams. Uh, We haven't Been able to deal with them in previous streams, so we'll deal with some of them uh, as we go. But if you have any questions about stuff that we've talked about in the past, about stuff that we talk about here tonight, or about the creation, evolution, Noah's flood, and the Bible topic in general, just stick them into the live chat, and we will be able to uh, actually deal with them as we go. Uh, Sam, of course, is monitoring the chat as well, so he'll look after you well in there, and hand all your your questions over to me as we go. Let's start with Scripture. Um, Isaiah chapter 41, and we're going to be looking at verse 20. You see, a lot of people ask us, why do you focus so much on fossils? Why do you focus so much on the beginning of Scripture, creation and Noah's flood and all that? Well, here's uh, our, really our um, theme verse, if you like, our motto, if you want, for creation research. It's straight out of the Bible. And John, I believe this was given to you quite a number of years back.
1: It certainly was. I got a query from one of our geologists in the USA who'd been asked by a missionary in South America... Help! what can I do? There's a PhD student here, and I've been trying to witness to him But every time I try and open the Bible, he says, what about evolution? Help mm. send me something. He's stuck on fossils. So I sent him the stuff, and the shortcut, a, a long story short, the PhD student became a Christian, got involved in a university union club, and then said, come and talk to them about the fossils. So that's what this verse is about. Speak to the well, now, that's the verse out of Job, but the verse you're talking about is what he gave me as an introduction to the lecture to the student group.
0: Okay, well, let's have a look and have a read. So bear in mind, this is why we are doing uh, what we do with creation research. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Now there's a huge amount to pack out of that one little verse so I'll say a little something and then John, um, if you want to to follow it up, but let's make a very important point here. Um, Who are we doing this for? Which God it is. Um, I've just spent a whole week doing what is a biblical worldview with a group of mission students in Malawi who were wonderful and, I mean, not exactly what you'd call punctual, but they were wonderful in uh, their desire to learn and to understand the scripture. And um, we dedicated an entire session into talking about which god are we actually referring to when we talk about the god of the bible because there are people out there who will say the god of the bible is the same as the god of islam Uh, there are people out there who say it doesn't matter what god you believe in it's all the same god well you have to be careful with that because if you open up your bible at genesis chapter one it says in the beginning god The word God there is not a name, it's a position, the word Elohim, the all-powerful God, it's also a plural, so you've got that interesting reference to the Trinity there, but it tells you a lot about what this God is like, Uh, he's the all-powerful God, but it's not actually a name. But you don't have to wait around for long, carry on reading through your scriptures and you find one of three things. Where you have the word Lord, L-O-R-D, usually in all capitals, that is a substitute for where God's name was, Yahweh or Yehovah. All of a sudden we have a specific God. Or you find that Jesus Christ is also God and is the creator of all things. It says in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were made by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And you can see references like this in Isaiah 41 where it says the Holy One of Israel. You do realize that there is only one Holy One of Israel. Um, You would never get away with calling Allah the Holy One of Israel, either in Israel or in any other Muslim country. So it's important to make sure that you know which God you're talking about. John, do you want to comment on the hand of the Lord bit, um, has created it?
1: Okay. so when you look at the biblical picture of creation, there is no doubt about it. The, the key issue that's brought up here and I've said it many times and I'll keep saying it till everybody listens that nothing happened by accident, right? God's hand is involved in everything. Now, when I, I'm, I'm sort of halfway through preparing my sermon for tomorrow that that's all about what, what authority a government has, Who where do they mm-hmm. get it from? Should a Christian disobey it? Well, in reality, all authority comes from the one who made all things. And when mm-hmm. this one, became flesh and lived among us no wonder when he rose from the dead he said all authority all power is given to me and if you look at the god of the old testament the god of the new testament you find the god in the old testament says i am the lord i do not change and the commentary in the new testament where the book of hebrews said jesus the same yesterday today and forever and he is lord so there's a tie-in and to, to deal with the whole of creation, there's one last thing. Because people say, how come it worked on that student in the jungles? How come you, you, you're so mad on fossils? And Joseph will give you a tour a bit later. Well, one simple reason. You see, if I'm going to hold up this little fossil here, there we are. Okay, can you recognize some kind of fern there? I can see the little of the fern, can can see fern? the, little oh. the
0: fern little
1: there. Yeah, that's me. nice. There we are. So we've got a fern. And I haven't found a single person on the planet yet that I've showed that rock to who does not know, hey, that's some kind of fern. Now, the reason is simple. God said that he doesn't change. God said that he spoke and the plants came into existence. God said through Paul in Romans that he has stamped his nature on the creation. So don't be surprised that you can recognize ferns living or fossilized because they are to reflect the nature of God. But on this fallen world, they'll either continue on as ferns, they'll get smaller due to degradation, or they will die out. They do not evolve. So, Joseph, mm. back to you.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, we're, we're looking at and we're talking about the museum project, right? Because you have a lot of fossils in Australia. I mean, in your in your museum collection, John.
1: I certainly have
0: tens of thousands My uh, lady we've just employed this year,
1: who's a sort of an ex-teacher, her job at the moment is to go through them and catalogue them and get them all ready for shifting into a big museum. It's taking years and years. Well, it took me years, 40 years to collect them. But in reality, we need to sort them out and put them on. And we can sort them out because God is a God of law and order. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God who doesn't change, so we can classify them because the first job God gave to Adam was go and classify the animals. And even the Oxford University, even the magnificent book that, you know, the, the Nature publications recognize that the oldest classification system on the planet is the one that the God who created all things by his hand, the God of Israel, gave Adam to do, go and label things. You can do it because I speak, you speak.
0: Yeah. And so we have a great fossil collection in Australia uh, and we have a great fossil collection in the UK as well. At the last estimate, because, John, I've got the same problem that you have. Um, Well, I don't have a a, a nice lady to come in and do all the cataloguing for me. So we've been stuck for a while. But the latest estimate is that we have around 12,000 fossils artifacts and geological specimens um, here in our museum collection. And the idea, and I know I've talked to you about this a lot, John, our idea for the UK project is to get all these on display in a network of museums around the UK. Not just one great big uh, massive um, you know museum in the center because well in the UK people aren't used to traveling more than a couple of hours in one direction to go and visit something in a day and I know that's funny to you folks in Australia and into the USA where you're used to flying to somewhere for a day right but uh, in the reality is in the culture and the size of the country that we're in that's just the way that it is so we need to have a network of museums with constantly updating and constantly changing exhibits so that's what we're sort of looking for to, but we've been uh, given permission to use the building which we're in at the moment, so we've set some stuff up on display, and uh, you can come and see some of our collection. You can come and have a tour around and get to grips and sort of have a, a good look at some of the real evidence that's out there on display. So, John, can we talk briefly about this sort of? You know, a lot of this stuff is evidence that we're putting on display. So, before we go and have a look around, why is it really important to have these museum? objects on display. And we really do have some world-class museum stuff, don't we? We
1: certainly do. And I'm going to give you an example of a slightly different sort of evidence before I hand back to you. But the importance of this is when you have a look at your Bible, it's emphatic that you check things out. I mean, Jesus repeated the first commandment out of the Ten Commandments, but he basically rephrased it. You will love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your mind you will think now if you're brought up on the simpsons don't expect to think too well right because the programs that they produce are designed to amuse you amuse means to not think right museum means to think so these will actually be on a a thinking display to get you to think and if the devil can shut your brain down he will stop you even listening to the evidence for jesus christ OK, mm-hmm. swap over to the New Testament where even the, the, the Apostle Luke, the Greek apostle, right, because he, he was a Greek doctor and somehow got involved with Jesus Christ, becomes a Christian and he writes, I have gone to all the trouble to gather all the available evidence from the eyewitnesses. Right. He just didn't say here's a book on the religious thoughts of a great leader from Israel. I've gone through exactly. all the trouble to gather all the evidence. So your museum is going to be about evidence. Our museum is about evidence. Tons and tons of it. I've got a shed in America as well. I've got stuff in Canada. I've got it everywhere. Praise the Lord. After 40 years, I've got more rocks than you've got, Joseph. But I'm willing to share some because you've actually got half of my rocks in England too, haven't you? So, I know, that's true. Yeah, we, we recently right. collected them all together. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But here's something else. That I just bought home yesterday. Now, do you see this rock? There are verses oh, the in It looks like a bit of sponge cake. Yeah, look at this lovely orange <laughs> color. Lead me to a rock that's higher than I. And as this same God uh, tells us to ask Him for everything, often my prayer is, Lead me to see the rocks that are lower than me. And this was one of them from <laughs> Jurassic ark yesterday. Isn't that a beautiful orange color? Well, Wonderful. the interesting thing is. You can actually collect that orange color and uh, look at it. You see those beautiful colors?
0: Oh, okay. That's very
1: vibrant, it. isn't it? It as It's vibrant. And then if you do a little bit of thinking, hey, I can make some paint. So you go and get yourself an emu egg. Chicken eggs will do. <laughs> and you can take the yolk out of there and you can mix it all up and you'll find Well, this is what uh, Michelangelo and the others did. You can paint it on plaster and and it lasts for a long, long time. Uh, It doesn't say used by date December 22nd uh, this year. It goes on for ages and ages and it's very vibrant. Now, if you ask, what's the color that's in here? Well, look, I bought a fossil in yesterday and, and look, it's in this fossil too. OK, oh, and then well, that's no, another one of
0: those Is that a little ferny cycad thing. That's there?
1: another little ferny. Yeah, that's what it is. But what you've got is plants. And if you like growing plants like me, I'm a gardener, right? You discover that you buy the fertilizers that have a certain percentage of iron in because whether it's human beings or plants, you need iron to get your chemical systems going. Iron mm. is what produces red color here. Now, if it's on your car, you go, oh no, because it's called rust. That's why it's so easy to crush up, and you can mix it with the yolk, and it gives you that lovely orangey colour. You can make it a paint, or you can see it in the beautiful, vibrant colour of the dichro idioms and the ferns that we've got all over eastern Australia. Now, to go one step further, I have one crystal today. You see that? Yep, I love. Oh, collecting I crystals. do love a good a
0: bit of amethyst. Oh, I well, I agree. John. John, um, I'm in the museum now, so you should you should brace oh, yourself. Yes. Um, well, while just talking you, just you wait there. I will be back yes. very, very shortly. Very I'm sorry, good. Well, but, we'll I'm sorry much, John has done this to me Joseph enough times with on. things like dinosaur teeth and all sorts of stuff where he's upstaged me, but I'm, I'm going to upstage <laughs> you now. There we go. Look at that.
1: That's pretty good, Joseph. But listen, One the point I want to make is, two, is twofold in this one. You can put your boast point down now. What we've got is a lovely piece of handheld stuff that I can use easily on TV and don't need to wander away and get it, but it's purple because of this mineral. The mineral is iron, okay? Now, iron does every color except for white. You can see incredible beauties, greens, purples, blacks, and it's all due to iron. Now, we're used to iron by, you know, as a metal, to do that, by the way, you can actually take this, you can crush it up, you can mix it with carbon, and you'll end up with iron. It'll melt out. And, and extracting iron is one of the easiest things on the planet to do. It's what they were doing back in Genesis chapter 4. They were inventing metal alloys, and iron would have been one of their first and basic ingredients. And all of those colors are due to God's cleverness. I mean, when you look at iron, it's one of these ones with heaps and heaps of electron stuff all around it. And the more electrons, the more colors it can make if the electrons can move freely. And when you think about God, he creatively, cleverly made even the iron by the power of his hand. The God of Israel did this. And the God of Israel, as Joseph said, no meaning for any events, but He's not Allah. That's not his name. Oh, yes, you'll find the word Allah in your Bible the kings of nineveh and places like that that's the word they had for god long before islam ah uh, you'll find allah is not the god of israel allah is just an old word meaning god and when you want the name of the god of israel his name is the one who never changes is jesus christ and he's the god who invented the color and he invented the materials that are basically reflecting his nature oh you've heard the fact that there's protons electrons And what's the other ones? Neutrons? Three parts to the atom? Don't be surprised. The God of Israel is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not just three of them, the three who are one. Not just any number three, but the three who can be represented in one way as well. And have a look. Have you seen your color wheel at school in the science lab? You put the three basic colors on it and you spin it and they all become one. Three who are one. Is the commonest thing all around the planet? Go look for it. How many threes in one? Yes, water does it as well. All sorts of things have the evidence of God's handiwork. And Joseph, I guess you're like me. We had a school ring up last week and say, Can we come? School holidays is on. Can we teachers come and check out Jurassic Arc? Because we want to bring 50 year one students. These are sort of six-year-old, oh no. Uh, we, we normally we dig up bones and that, but it doesn't work for the little kids. So any listeners out there who might have good ideas of what you could do with 50 kids in a normal fossil <laughs> museum, let both Joseph and me know, because I'm sure there's plenty of, oh, we've already got sand pits and fossil bones and that. They yeah, can dig up, with there's lots more things you can help us with. So if you've got good ideas on what we can do with the students, let us know. And Joseph's email address will be
0: on here later on. Yeah, they're they're great fun to, to, to work with the little kids. Um, Great stuff, there, John. In fact, you're, uh, if people are interested, when you talk about that Trinity being represented in living things, it also, or, or you know, in, in nature, it harkens back to Romans chapter one, where it says that God's attributes are so clearly seen in nature that man is without excuse. It would stand to reason that one of those attributes of God, the Trinity, is seen there. And for folks who want to find out more about that, I believe he did a program, John, called "God's Signature in Creation: uh, Allah or Christ." That is available from all of our UK, uh, all of our web shops. Sorry, including the UK, Australia, and you can also stream it. We've got a brand new streaming site, which is a, a great way of doing things. Now, um, you don't have to buy the DVD, you don't have to download a massive MP4 file. You can just stream it, nice and simply. You're looking for God's signature in creation, Allah or Christ, and I think that deals with that quite nicely in there as well. All right, I think what we should do is we should turn the camera around and start having a look at some of the marvelous things that God has provided for us. Before we do that, I want to introduce somebody to you. Come over here, dear. This is the person who uh, is behind the camera and sorts all of the tech stuff out for me personally, and she never gets seen. This is my wife, Sarah Ann, uh, and what she's going to do now is she's going to, we've got a special creation cam, um, which we're going to uh, set up just here. You're going to take that for me, and we're going to turn it on like that and then we're going to put it up like that but drag this to the main one right you want to go that way out of the light because it's uh it's uh very very gleamy. here we go right let's come over here and turn some lights around so we can actually start to see what we're talking about turn some lights around. So it's quite dark here in the UK at the moment, and it's not brilliant lighting in this building, but we will work on that in the future for when people come around. So John, can you see me?
1: Definitely, beautiful.
0: Excellent, great stuff. Well, so these are some of the uh, displays that we actually have on display here. So we've got fossils over there, we've got geological stuff over here, and then we've got human artifacts. Yes, we do have lots of human artifacts as well, and it's great to uh, get all these things on display. But let's come over here for the moment, Sarah, and get some light on these wonderful fossils over at the back here. These are some of our biggest fossils we actually have on display here. You can see this beautiful Orthoceras slab or nautiloid slab. I mean, you see all the chambers, all the chambers that would hold gas so that it could float, the creature could float or sink. The creature lived down the bottom here, stuck his tentacles out the end, uh, sort of a squid-like creature. And we have them all these beautiful orthoceros. Can you see how they're all pointing the same way? See, these are Devonian rocks, and they're all pointing the same way. And, John, when you have elongated creatures or elongated, uh, you know, living things like wood as well, that are all pointing in the same way, have all been buried pointing the same way, what are we looking at evidence for?
1: Well, basically, you can even run the experiments. You're going to get a big bath, you can get a big pond, you can get a river in flood, throw heaps of sticks in it, or line up all these creatures and you find the water itself gives them all a direction and the ones that are elongate will in the end line up to indicate what direction the current was flowing i was recently up at uh, uh, central queensland and there'd been a flood under a bridge and the log jam had got trapped against the bridge and when you looked at it you saw all the logs the big long logs were lined up and the little ones were trapped in between them. But that's what you saw instead of having the nautiloid things, they were just logs. So this is wonderful evidence of a flood directional current pushing things. In fact, I've got a bigger one of that, Joseph, you you know that, don't you? I
0: know, I know, but you can't show it at the moment. So I'm, I'm, no, I'm still... Right. But I was in the bottom no.
1: of Tennessee. There's a huge quarry down in Nashville and the, the this bed is huge. It goes from there, you'll see it in the Grand Canyon. You can see uh, unbelievable numbers of these things that have been washed up, lined up, and then covered up before they could rot.
0: Yeah, and these, these ones come from Morocco, and they are, I mean, they are in their billions. They are absolutely beautiful. In fact, one of the things I know we've been talking about, John, is I would love to do a research trip to Morocco and take all of our cameras with us so we can film a documentary there, because you get so many fossils from Morocco Including this kind of thing. Uh, this is a fairly new one. It is an enormous crinoid slab or crinoids or fossil sea lilies. Sea lilies is their common name, and they are still alive today we call them sea lilies they look like plants they're actually creatures they anchor themselves to the seabed with this big bulb and can you see the little sort of join on the top there where it would join onto one of these stems so this would be anchored to the ground they'd join these stems and then they fan out and they filter feed they wave their fans out and filter feed and they are extremely fragile in the real world today where these creatures live, you can see them getting shattered and broken by just the mildest current. In order to be buried in such beautiful and pristine detail, they would have to be buried extremely quickly. And John, what's our catchphrase that we say over and over and over again? Fossilisation is not about what?
1: Time, it's about process. And while we're on those crinoids, Joseph, um, one of our geologists in the USA was amazed uh, when I told him if he wants to see them living... He can come to the Great Barrier Reef. And he said, but at university, that's right. University, they taught us that these had died out. And you can still get textbooks that says these are now extinct. Well, they're perfectly alive and looking pretty identical off the coast of Australia. And you know what else I found? They're even off the coast of New York, around about 300 feet and uh, to 200 feet deep. Uh, So that's why most Americans. Don't even know they exist. They don't normally <laughs> travel that deep below the surface of the sea. But they are still there. And even if you thought those rocks were 200, 300, 400 million years old, the crinoids have turned into crinoids after their kind because the nature of the creator is seen. He never changes. He stamps that. Even though the world changes and goes downhill and all living things are affected by that, some sadly to the point of extinction, you find the evidence is. Backing your Bible, not backing Darwin.
0: So what you're saying is that for as long as these creatures have been on planet Earth, according to the rocks, whether you want to argue that that's millions of years or only a few thousand years, as long as these creatures have been on planet Earth, they've been doing what God commanded them to do back in the beginning, which is reproduce after their own kind. And that's all the evidence that we can see from the fossil record confirms what we read in God's Word.
1: Now, that's why that phd student became a christian it's why one of our biggest uh, uh, pastors in in new zealand actually i didn't even know he was there but he had multiple degrees and his biggest problem with the science of evolution was that no one was interested in the actual evidence so he came along and i gave him a lecture on um, you know after their own kind living fossils etc and he <laughs> went away and he became a christian now he's a pastor So, you see, the evidence matters because Christianity is a fact-based faith. It's not a fiction-based faith. It's not theological theory. It's a fact-based, evidence-based faith. So, yes, preach the faith, preach the facts. They both are related.
0: Yeah, and I think living fossils was a term that was first coined by Charles Darwin, and he sort of contradicted himself because he admitted the existence of living fossils, these forms which have remained unchanged, and then he went on to say that his entire idea of evolution was based on not the necessarily the uh, strongest animal or the fittest animal, but the one that was most adaptable to change. So he said his entire theory is based on animals being able to change all by themselves, and yet. From the fossil record there simply isn't any evidence of that. I mean we've just got living fossils here in these cabinets, we've got a fossil crocodile skull. Supposedly 90 odd million years old, hasn't changed one bit in the slightest, they're still around today. This is another one from Morocco, come have a look down here, another living fossil down the bottom here, a nautilus. Um, Again, you see the fossil one right at the back there. You see the modern ones in the front. This one has had its uh, shell cut in half, so you can see the chambers inside. No change in the slightest. And then if you have a look up here, a fossil horseshoe crab, both the modern-day one and the fossil one from the Solnhofen in Germany. Great evidence that these creatures have been doing exactly what God told them to do ever since the beginning um let's move into some sort of archaeological things now because we've been really blessed with some amazing archaeology from great things such as a egyptian mummy mask that you can just see here all the way over to perhaps one of my most favorite uh artifacts come have a look at what we're looking at up here i mean can you see the uh writing the stamped brick in there ah this is something that has been stamped by King Nebuchadnezzar. We know it's been stamped by King Nebuchadnezzar himself because it refers to the king in the first person, uh, just like he does in the book of Daniel, by the way. Yes, for a long time, scholars didn't think that the book of Daniel was very accurate when it got to recording Nebuchadnezzar's words um, because it referred to the king in the first person. And they said no scribe would have dared write down uh, about the king in the first person. But it turns out when you find first person reference like you do in this brick, And like you do with uh, uh, the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, it's when the king himself has actually penned it. So you've got wonderful evidence that the Bible is true. And we've got wonderful evidence from lots of different cultures from around the planet. uh, And they all show, well, not only was there an extremely fast rise of civilizations after the Tower of Babel, which doesn't fit with an evolutionary point of view, but we also have things like these pots here. Let's open up the cabinets You don't get to do this in a lot of museums, do you? And actually have a look at some of these pots here. Let's get it into the light. It's a rather beautiful pot, and this is a Hittite pot. Oh, Hittites? Well, there seem to be two different groups of Hittites. The old Hittites that Abraham talked uh, to and did trade with, and then you have what are known as the Neo-Hittites or the New Hittite Empire. And there's an interesting reference in the book of Kings where it talks about the Syrians who are invading the kings of Israel and God performs a miracle. He makes the Syrians hear the sounds of a great army and the Syrians say, wow, the kings of Israel must have rallied against the kings of Egypt and the kings of the Hittites in order to come and attack us. And in the 1880s uh, one of the world's leading archaeologists wrote a scathing review of the Bible saying there's no way that there was an empire big enough to actually be compared to Egypt at that time. And then in 1926 they found it. The Neo-Hittite Empire, which was one of the three superpowers in the world of that time. You had Egypt, you had Assyria, and you had the Hittite Empire. So real evidence that the Bible is true and can be trusted. From our Hittite stuff, from our Canaanite stuff, we've got Greek And we've got ancient Chinese, we've got things from ancient Babylon and wonderful artifacts from ancient Egypt as well. God has been really good at blessing us. But one of the points that we like to make when it comes to archaeology is that... A lot of people view biblical archaeology, or the term biblical archaeology, as archaeology of the Bible. And that certainly comes into it, but if you think about it, the Bible is the history book of God's dealings with mankind, from creation all the way through to the end of the world, when Christ will reign forevermore. Ah, it's a complete history of the world, including prophecy. So all history can be viewed from a biblical perspective. That's what I've just spent the last week doing with these students in Malawi. It's talking about how do we get a biblical perspective of all things. So it's great to have the you know Bible artifacts, but what about these kind of artifacts? I mean, what is this? Um, if you thought it was some kind of a sword, you'd be right. This is actually a sax. It's a short sword, long dagger, which the Anglo-Saxons were actually named after this particular tool. And they'd wear it on the front of their body like this. They'd have the big sword down the side. They'd wear this on the front of their body, and it was sort of, you know... Big enough to fight off wild dogs or use it as a weapon if you had to, um, but small enough to use it as a multi-purpose machete or chopping or things like that. But this is what the Saxons, those people that invaded uh, Britannia and set up their sort of clans and tribes around the United Kingdom or Britannia as it was then, and uh, this is a real artefact by the way, it's a replica handle but the blade is 100% real. Why would we have this in a creation museum? Well, remember our point, all of history can be viewed out with a biblical perspective. And if you want to know how the Anglo-Saxons and how the Vikings relate to the Bible, we highly recommend this book, um, After the Flood by the late Bill Cooper, a great researcher, uh, and he put together this book that shows how you can trace the king list of the Anglo-Saxons all the way back to Noah just from the reports. Wow. I mean, we highly recommend this book. We sell it with Creation Research. It's a fabulous book to read because it traces things like the Celts and the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings all the way back to Noah, just from their uh, records. So our program and our fossils and our artifacts are here to bring the Bible to life and to help give people a real history of the world, from beginning all the way to the end. But one of the things that I like to remind people when they come and see museums like this, and we've just barely scratched the surface of some of the stuff, um, this is a working museum as well as a museum in the works, right? We're a long way off getting it to its final stage. We're a long way off letting people just come in and have a look. But even when we are fully open and ready to go, it will still be a working museum. We will be actively doing research, and John, you can tell us about Jurassic Ark and some of the research you've been doing, but before I hand back to you to talk about that, let's introduce it using this display. This is our Titan Mite display. Now, just down the road is Chert Canal Tunnel, and it has some great stalactites and stalagmites in there, and you can even watch a documentary we filmed a little while back about this, But these are some of our fabulous stalactite collection from around the world, including this rather large Chinese stalactite that we had donated to the ministry. I mean, it weighs an absolute ton. It's absolutely enormous. But hey, it's really very beautiful. Um, You do realize that stalactites are supposed to be one of the biggest evidences that the Bible isn't true because it takes so long to actually form them. Well, we've been doing some wonderful research and we've got collections from all over the planet. We're gonna get our own stalactite-making machine here, just like we have at Jurassic Arc, showing that, hey, um, this can happen a lot quicker. And John, to hand back over to you, I wondered if you might like to comment on this particular stalactite um, that we can see here. I think you collected this a few years back from an abandoned quarry. Would you like to tell us about that?
1: I I certainly did, Joseph, and uh... It, um, it, it was sort of like uh, just off the old Roman road. So the quarry and the stones have been there for a long time. And the mine had shut down one of the first little caves that people would go into. It was all bricked off at the back because they'd got high-quality limestone from here. Now, for those of you who do know your English history, you know the Romans were famous for being able to travel everywhere because they built really straight roads. And they, I mean, in fact, straight and street are, are connected words and both of them relate to the Romans, but the Romans kept their roads in England and all over the place. They kept them dry and strong by the use of limestone blocks. Uh, they quartered the rocks and that's one half of the word quarry. So our English word quarry and this little cave are all connected to Roman history. And yet it was blocked off. They they made a mistake. They'd only left a little hole at the top. I don't know how it got there. Perhaps people like me kept taking the rocks away. Who knows? I'm never confessing. But uh, anyway, I crawled in through here and inside it was pitch black and the water was right up to my waist. And Joseph, you've done this. And in caves in winter in England, it's freezing. So oh, I went yeah. in the water and I froze all the way up to the waist. But there above me, were stalactites, but there behind the stalactites was a big brick wall where the old door hinges, where there'd been a door where they went in. Now, that meant that if you drove your little trolley in to bring things up, which is what they used to do, drove in the pony to carry things out, sent the men in with their tools to dig things out, there were no stalactites. They got in the road. In fact, I know they got in the road because the one you are are looking at, I, I bumped into it. And it knocked it off. Um, You know, my head really hurt. So you've you've had an injury here, Joseph. I might sue you one day uh, to get the, the blood back. But in reality, this fell off. And when you ask, when was this wall put in? The answer is just over 100 years ago. So this stalactite is at the most no more than 100 years old when we started collecting and that's why we set up our stalactite machines here in australia and we made the design available for joseph and they'll do exactly the same thing it doesn't take time to make a stalactite it takes a process now joseph would you hold up one of those pots again so i can make another point that's really coming um,
0: the hittite ones
1: well it doesn't matter which one just any pottery will do at the moment. Any because pottery? Should...
0: Well, let's have let's have a look Which? at a nice a nice example here. Yeah. Um, let's go with this one. I like this one. I'll bring it up to the camera um, because Good. it's a little bit better quality light over here. This is actually a pot from a place called Ur. Um, you know about Ur out of your Bibles because it's where God called Abram out of before he was Abraham. Uh, come out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, and it's got some wonderful details. In fact, actually, John. I was, uh, I'm not sure if I've told you this, when we were at the homeschooling conference recently, uh, I met a lady there who had a degree in pot making, in pottery, and we had a wonderful conversation with her about the skill and the uh, artwork that went into some of these things. So you can see it's a beautiful pot, but it's also got this wonderful decoration around the top here as well. Um, A wonderful great big pot straight out of the Bible. So go ahead, John.
1: Okay. Okay. Now, while you're holding that up, it's good exercise. But in reality, I live in a country where there was no pottery. I've been to New Zealand where there was no pottery. Yet both groups had people. And when you look at the evidence, it supports the biblical picture that when God separated the peoples at the Tower of Babel, they did not all go away with the same knowledge. You'd already had division of labor in order to build the big Tower of Babel some would be brickmakers knowledgeable of clay some would be bread makers some would be grain growers some would be hunters etc it was a very coordinated society and then it gets split up if your dad grew greek you didn't know how to make pottery if your dad was a bread maker you didn't know how to make paint to paint on the walls etc and when you look at australia we find no pottery the aborigines had neither pottery nor saxes right the the sea axes that the saxons are named after is made of metal the aborigines had no use for metal or did not know what to use it for but yet they came from india where they already had steel not just iron but steel and what's interesting is as i talked to them and collected their legends and you can see these in our dvds our mp3s mp4s origin Races, real roots etc see them saying these things themselves that they arrived in Australia after the big flood, right? Aboriginal elder tells you that. They'd left the middle of the world, much war and fighting. By the time they got here, they had neither pottery, nor did they have the ability to make steel. And what was the reason? Well, the Aboriginal elder showed me big stone tools that for all practical purposes, look just like the tools that we use, except because we make them out of metal, They they can be tinier. And here was his story. We came to this country, And we went into the hills and there we found the spirits and we began to worship them. And we lost the ability to make metal. Now, can you see what's happening? The biblical picture is God made Adam. He made him perfect. Adam was made in God's image. God has a will. So Adam had a will, not as big as God's will, but he chose sin. And from then on, the history of the world is downhill, whether it's through the ark or Babel or after Babel. And by the time you get to a Stone Age culture, they're not primitive people on the way up, they're advanced people on actually the way down. So again, it supports the actual picture of the biblical record, even in the anthropology of Australia and New Zealand.
0: Great stuff there. Thanks for that, John. Um, I think we should turn to some questions now. uh, And I'm just having a look through the comments. There's lots and lots of comments, which are absolutely brilliant. So thank you very much everybody for uh, getting involved. And uh, any questions that you may have, start sticking them in now. We'll start with a nice question from George Bond that I've just seen here, that's come in live. Um, I'm going to hand over to you for this, John, uh, with a bit of a more of a technical question and then I'll comment on it afterwards. Um Mineral contains 45.77% uranium, but no appreciable quantity of lead. If the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, why don't we find an equal amount of lead?
1: Okay, now, George, most people probably won't even follow the argument, that's it's based <laughs> on the belief that if you have a rock and there's a process going on, which is doing something to the original quantity, so uranium is a breakdown rock. So it starts out as a lump of, of uh, uranium and it has radioactive so it gives off radiation and that radiation is converted mass ultimately as it changes from one form to the other so because it gives off energy we figured out a way to make it give off the energy real fast when we dropped the bomb at hiroshima right so you're taking substance a it's losing energy and mass and changing from type a to type b and therefore if you're going to have only type b in the rock right then type b is come from type a so there's got to be a remnant of type a left in it so normally the radioactive methods say if you've got one percent this and 99 percent that you put it on a scale here's how long that rock has been falling apart but if you only find type b which is what you're saying in this rock here then there's no indication that this has come from anywhere uh, or you only find type a and no byproducts then it can't have been there for 10,000 years, let alone 10 billion years. So there's a fallacy um, in this rock here. It cannot be vast ages at all. So there there is the expose of radiation decay. And in reality, I have to smile. uh, I've done quite a few debates and Joseph, they can get those on streaming too, can they? Yeah, they're all on streaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all on streaming. And by the way, for those of you in our bookshops, who get to the museums or go to the websites two things you'll find our historian dr john osgood has plenty of useful books on archaeology on history on the ancient cultures and joseph might have some handy to hold up i don't hear at the moment but you have that But what you'll find is when you have a look at the debating subject i love to remind people that evolution is so full of hypocrisies their dating is one of the biggest ones they have a belief that little molecules can actually turn into bigger molecules and the finally turn into living things like Joseph Hubbard, right? And, and the thing is gaining information. It's gaining mass. It's gaining energy as it goes from simple to complex. And they believe that that process can happen at the same time as every rock is falling apart. Some just due to erosion, but some actually due to losing. So the world is old enough for millions of years of evolution to occur because the rocks are actually disintegrated from big molecules or big atoms to little atoms. Those two things cannot happen at the same time. That's why you don't run around uh, with radiation in your pocket. You see, I, I, I take students on field trips in Tennessee and there's one rock there called the Chattanooga Shale. It's got some great fossils in it. But when I take it, I tell the boys particularly, don't put it in your pocket right, because it's a source of uranium and you'll lose a few things if you keep this radioactive rock in your pocket. So wrap it up, put it in a lead foil, take it home, put it on display, but don't get it near yourself for very long times. So you cannot have a process that builds things up from simple molecules up to complex ones like evolution at the same time as you date it old enough by a process that's doing the opposite.
0: If uh, some of you more sort of less... Technical-minded people out there didn't quite follow all of that. Let me just... comment one last thing um, to do with this topic and the whole topic in general because sometimes, especially during debates or discussions, you can get bogged down with the technicality when the reality is every single dating method, it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, uranium to lead or potassium to argon or carbon-14 dating or whatever it is, they all have exactly the same underlying assumptions. And yes, we can talk about the assumptions like you assume that there's X amount of uh, material there in the beginning, you're assuming that the decay rate is also constant, and this, that, and the other. But the real major assumption, which is underpinning not only every single dating method, but pretty much the entirety of secular geology, is the assumption which Charles Lyell introduced uh, to the scientific community a couple of hundred years back, and that is that the present is the key to the past. Uniformitarianism, as we call it, and it's the assumption that If we observe something happening today, then we assume that it has always happened that way. So if slow gradual erosion or slow gradual deposition is what we observe today, then it's always happened that way. There's no room for a global flood or any other outside factors influencing our our dating methods. Now, if you want a biblical perspective on that, does the Bible teach that the present is the key to the past? No, it teaches exactly the opposite. It teaches us that the past is the key to the present, because of God's creation is why we're here today, because of mankind's sin and messed up in the past, the fall of mankind, that's why we're in the mess we're in today, and also because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on a cross 2,000 years ago is why we can have a personal relationship with God today. The past is the key to the present, and the past is recorded both in history, but also in revealed history in God's Word. So any dating method, the underlying assumption is something that is strictly anti-biblical, and that is something which even Charles Lyell himself admitted. He was a lawyer by trade, and he said in his letters, which got published after his death, quote-unquote, my aim is to free science from Moses. Moses, or Moses is attributed to writing the first, or at least compiling the first five books of the Bible, and in there you find not only the creation of mankind, not only the origin of sin and the fall of mankind, and the need for a saviour, not only God's judging power in the form of a flood, not only God's judging power in the history of mankind, in the uh, record of the Tower of Babel, but also the complete law of God. Um, get rid of that foundation for the entirety of the Christian faith, and you have no basis to which to believe anything in the Bible anymore. Yes, these dating methods are founded on an assumption, on a philosophy, which is completely anti-biblical, and as a result, don't be surprised when you end up with getting dates that simply don't fit in the Bible. Um, It's not the actual facts that are the problem, it's the interpretation and the assumption that is associated with the facts. So there's a little comment for you there. Um, I don't think we've got any more comments come through tonight specifically, but we have got comments and uh, questions, rather, sorry, from previous streams. So John, I'm just going to chuck a couple up on the screen for us to have a look at. By the way, guys, we told you a little while back that whenever you stick questions in, if we don't get a chance to come to them in that stream, we will always try and have a special Q&A session like we have tonight, a sort of an update and a Q&A session when we actually bring them all together. So um, – Let's have a look at this question, John, Uh, a bit more of a theological one, perhaps. How long did the fall take, do you think? Uh, I'm assuming we're talking about the fall of mankind. And I'm assuming we're talking, you know, God tells us that Adam and Eve sinned and God put a curse on the ground. He proclaimed the curse to both the man, the woman and the serpent. How long did it take for that curse to begin to take effect?
1: Okay. uh, so just to throw in two sort of semi-commercials about some of the things we've talked about so far. Whilst we're not giving you pictures of Jurassic Ark tonight, uh, if you want to see Jurassic Ark for free and you're in America or Canada or England, then go to creationresearch.net and I'm sure uh, Sam will put it up in a moment. And you, there's a whole block there, you can just press on the term Jurassic Arc or search for museum. So that's creationresearch.net, search for museum, or click on the Jurassic Arc little button and you'll get a free tour of Jurassic Arc and see some of the things which we hope will encourage you to one day come if the world ever opens up again. And for those of you in Queensland, we're open and we're open big time again until the next government lockdown. So we're praising the Lord for just a little bit of free space here and schools. The other thing is I asked Joseph at the start because he just illustrated something So many of the questions about this are in the technical realm that are really designed to assume either people are so ignorant they can't disagree or the words are so big they will just have to be believed because we know scientists know what they're talking about. But there is a whole part of our work and we hinted at it, the schools that want to bring 50 year one students to Jurassic Park. Praise the Lord for that sort of thing. But we have a a reputation for doing some kids work as well. So one of the things we've got and you can have a look at all the kids' books; they'll be online there. Uh, that was our first one, and it's still the most popular seller. Um, why did or how did Ellie Elephant get such a long, long nose? It's a really a good book. Good book on wonderful design in rhyme, lots of fun. Or well, this one, Adam and Eve and the monkeys in the trees. You're quite right. I love rhyme. I love you know. I could have been a poet if I wanted to, but uh, nobody would know it. I do fun poetry, and the kids love it. And that's why we're having kids come to Jurassic Park. Okay, to answer your question now, Joseph, when you have a look at, actually, you better remind me what the whole question was again because the audience will have forgotten to. Questions
0: up on the screen there. It's uh, from Patrick Parker. How long did the fall take? So I'm assuming it's how long from the time that God cursed the planet did it take for the fall or the effects of the fall to actually start taking place?
1: It's a good question. And it's usually asked by people who are worried about the age of the world. I mean, if Adam and Eve were in the garden for 10,000 years, right. And they didn't have kids. Does that mean the world just can't be added up from Adam's lifespan up to the present because the normal figure you get from Calvin or uh, Theophilus uh, way back in the second century is six to 7,000 years. But if you don't know how long they're in a garden, you can make that millions of years. That's the sort of implication that many people have behind it. Okay, a great question, a good one. But here's what you've got. On the sixth day when God made Adam, he gave him dominion. On the sixth day when God made Eve in the afternoon before the coffee break, he put them together and his commandment is multiply and fill the earth. So there's the first commandment. And the second commandment is don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The generosity of God is unbelievable because they had 27 million other trees they could choose from or even perhaps more. Uh, But there was one that God said, don't eat of it." Of course, Eve messed that up a little later when she told the serpent, oh, God said, don't touch it. Well, don't, don't do that. If something's not in the Bible, don't help God along. He didn't need Eve to tell him that he meant don't eat it, right? So you find that Eve eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam, instead of saying, oh, Lord, the woman's blown it. I need a new one. He did have that option, by the way, you and I would have said that's heartless. But the same God, when he became flesh and dwelt on the earth, he said to his disciples, if you love your wife more than me, you cannot be my disciple. So Adam actually ate the fruit, too. He would rather join his wife than join the God who had the right to make the rules. So now we have Adam and Eve in the garden. It's after the seventh day. And you see God rested on the seventh. There's no hint that the world was rotten on the seventh day because everything was very good that God made and he rested on the seventh. So it's got to be at least the Monday following, uh, you know, the Monday or Tuesday. It's got to be a couple of days at least before this fall actually occurs. But as to what happened after that, okay, the first commandment was multiply and fill the earth eve was not pregnant when she sinned adam was not pregnant when he sinned and gets the responsibility of sinning okay so then they're going to have a baby all right so what's happening now did they spend a million years waiting to have a baby about ten thousand years the fact is that it was the first commandment they were actually given so here's my tongue-in-cheek type answer and i haven't come across a better way of thinking about it if you and i If you're my wife, if we're married and we're in the Garden of Eden and we are naturally human, then making love, having sex is going to be one of the things we will do because we enjoy it, right? So Adam and Eve had no reason to not engage in married occupations as soon as they went out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, How long would it be if you were in ideal circumstances before you could practice cohabitation and not get pregnant? Okay, here's my suggestion. Three weeks maximum, because that's the pattern today. And things have reproduced after their kind. Oh, we've got to the stage where some women will never have babies. uh, But the average person, three weeks and that's it. You will find you can become pregnant after three weeks because that's the monthly or the monthly cycle. We are tied into the moon in how our body cycles function And that hasn't changed whatsoever So Adam and Eve would have been no more in my opinion And it's only opinion because it's not talked about in the Bible But there's none that I've come across that's any more helpful They would have been there a maximum of three weeks So when it says Adam died being 930 years age It's from the beginning of the creation when he is first made on that Well what day was it? Friday He was made on the Friday. So no wonder the number of man is six. And because man is made in the image of a triune God, man's number becomes when he's fallen six, six, six. Oh, but that's a different subject. I won't go there.
0: Great stuff. And um, you can also... uh... Uh, I think, you know, talking about the effects of after the fall, how long did it take the effects of the fall to, to, to take? Because some of the contradictions that people will attempt to bring up will be, well, Adam didn't drop dead, the second day of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it pays to have a look at what the word actually means because it means dying, you shall die. And Adam certainly did end up dying. He was no longer being fully rejuvenated. And so he ended up dying of a ripe old age of 930, but he still did die, and so you can kind of see the effects of the curse, and one of those things we were actually talking about recently, John, it was thorns and thistles, and it's interesting if you have a look at what actually causes thorns and thistles, like the actual biology behind them, it's one of three things. You either have a mutation, which causes a big spike to stick out the side of the plant, like it does with roses, which is a prickle, or you have a shoot, which because of a problem, it stops growing, it can't produce leaves, and so it gets rubbed down and gets hard and sharp, or you end up having it where the veins, which carry the nutrients uh, from the leaves or from the roots up to the leaves and the sugar from the leaves down to the plant, you end up having a mutation and a problem where the leaves begin to shrink, but the sharp tubes, which are made out of silica, carry on sticking out and they produce these prickly bits. In all three cases, It is the result of devolution. They're going downhill. They are not evolving, they're devolving, and all of which is a result of sin. So when God said the earth shall bring forth thorns and thistles and it shall be a rather nasty place from now on, you can really see how over a number of generations of uh, devolution, going downhill, mutations and mistakes causing problems, that you end up with things like thorns actually affecting the world around us um let's have a look and see if there are any other questions uh, on the chat before we begin to wrap it up because we've done an hour and that's a, a nice amount of time to uh, to deal with stuff uh, lots of people commenting great stuff about the um kids books by the way john <laughs> george has asked another question here we go Let's pop this up from George here. Um, why does Australia contain 33% of the world's uranium and 20% of the world's thorium? Um, I don't know if many viewers will even understand what uh, half of those elements are. I uh, understand what thorium is very well because I actually sat through a good friend of ours, uh, didn't I, John, talking about thorium for <laughs> six hours. So I came away, uh, 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 Clem is a, is a great guy and he's, uh, he knows lots and lots about the... Uh, rocket science and the mm. the radioactive side of things so he's actually uh i'm assuming he's still working with you guys john with jurassic art yeah,
1: we, we were up at jurassic art yesterday together and uh yeah. clem's one of these guys who's great on on ideas but i don't think you were involved in a seminar on thorium you sat through listening to somebody speak about thorium <laughs> that's what Clem's really good at but anyway to get down to practical issues uh the figures look great george in Australia of uranium uh, 30% uh, what is it 20% of thorium now as much as we like to use this as a boasting thing um, these are just arbitrary figures I still remember when at university uh, I I was doing geology coal geology etc particularly the impression that was given to us because my professor said it there will not be oil found in Australia because Australia is too old. Now, when I went to New Zealand, I did a debate and the professor said, well, listen, um, if we ever find oil in New Zealand, I'll become a creationist as New Zealand is too young. (laughs) And I went, oh, this is ridiculous. Right. So the since then, by the way, we found oil and gas in New Zealand and we found oil and gas in Australia. They were there all the time. We just didn't dig deep enough. We didn't do our homework well enough. So these are arbitrary figures. Maybe next week Iceland will find a volcanic flow come up that gives them more uranium in one day than we've got here. So um, there is no answer to your question apart from God enjoys blessing countries in different ways, and that's the only reason you'll find for for those sort of uh, percentages and and profits that that you could make out of the minerals in the ground.
0: Hmm. I've always thought it's interesting because, as you know, as much as you know, we're created in god's image so we're able to be creative and we're able to harness energy and stuff like this so certainly things like uranium and thorium which we don't have a lot of in the uk at all um is uh, a blessing uh, to some countries but i i wonder what the and i know we've discussed this briefly john i wonder what the link between countries with a much higher percentage of radioactive rocks and the general cancer rates within that country especially people who live over radioactive rocks all of their lives. Um, I mean, we've discussed at a place in Tennessee, there's the, um, the um, uh, what's it called, the uh, Chattanooga Shale, which is uh, radioactive. And uh, some people spend their entire lives sitting on top of this great big radioactive rock. So I, uh, I expect there's an interesting link there between the kind of uh, radioactive-induced cancers and where people are living nearby.
1: Okay, two things then. You will find that uh, the purpose of radioactivity uh, is originally, I'm pretty sure, before the sun, right? The Hmm. Bible tells us the sun wasn't made until the fourth day, and yet the earth has got water on it. It's not too cold, neither is it too hot. I'm pretty sure the original purpose of radioactive rocks was underfloor heating for the planet. Hmm. You find the fountains of the deep which are put in the earth on the third day, many of them circulate and they transfer heat and radioactivity is a sure source of heat. So I'm pretty sure one of the original functions of the radioactive rocks is to keep planet Earth not too hot and not too cold. But the minute you have the flood and the fountains of the deep break open and the underwater rocks become surface rocks. So here in Australia, where are our main uranium deposits? They're in what the evolutionists call the old, the Precambrian, the non-fossil bearing rocks. They've been stripped down and exposed and that's the sort of key you'd expect given a biblical picture of the uranium there but underground beforehand. Likewise, when you look at the Chattanooga Shale, now I've collected a lot in Chattanooga Shale and it contains both huge trees as well as um, beautiful sea creatures. Right? So it's a marvellous mix. It goes from Canada all the way down to Alabama and west across to the uh, California Ranges almost, right? It's a huge deposit, exits out the northeast coast through uh, just near New York. It's incredibly huge, but it's also wow. full of microscopic amounts of uranium. And uh, in World War II, they were even considering trying to stockpile it and enrich it, but it's just too little an amount to actually make use of. But here's the problem, if you dig your basement in that rock, then the uranium will decompose and the uranium, one byproduct one of uranium is, is a radioactive gas called radon. Now that's the one that will get you, right? Yeah. So if you've got a, 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 a basement built of radioactive rocks, either the, the metamorphic rocks over in the ranges of the Appalachians or even the Chattanooga Shale, you are putting yourself in hazard. mean that's why I told the kids don't particularly the boys don't put this stuff in your pocket right where it can build up and the radiation coming off particularly from the radon can get you so there is a minor link there but only because of what you do I've checked all the plants up and down the valleys where this is growing and I can't find too many more radiation damage uh, things from the plants or what the things that live on the surface where the wind can blow the radon away but in the basements that's the one that kills you in Philadelphia or whatever. So be careful. Don't store yeah. it in your pocket or don't live yourself in the basement.
0: And we've noticed, especially, you see, at the, at the top of the cliff where you've got a nice clearing where, like you say, the wind blows, um, there doesn't seem to be much effect. But if you go down into the road cuts, where they've cut out the road right through the Chattanooga Shale, and you have a look down in the little gullies that are formed from the rain, and you see where these plants are growing pretty much enclosed on all sides by the Chattanooga Shale, you get a very big percentage of mutated plants, plants that are just weirdly shaped leaves or have got all curled up or have got hardly any chlorophyll in their leaves, so they're this weird sort of white kind of uh, pale very pale sickly green mixture so it's uh, it certainly does if it affects a plant during its lifetime growing there um it's interesting thinking isn't it but then again it goes back to that point of and i gave a whole presentation to the students about this and i gave a whole presentation to the homeschoolers conference why would a good god make bad things I mean, there's nobody on this planet who would say that a uh, cancer induced by radioactive rocks that you've been living on all your life is good. But like you said earlier, uh, it was good because it wouldn't have affected us until mankind sinned. And as a result of the sin and man's wickedness, God flooded the earth. And because of that judgment, it brings all the radioactive stuff to the surface. It's the same kind of story for things like venoms. Did God create venom? Absolutely. What did he create it for? For exactly what venom is used for today, which is for digesting things. It just so happens if it injects it into you, it will start to digest you, and uh, you'll die as a result. But venom is just as good at digesting plants as it is digesting you. So you have to make sure you look at things with a biblical perspective, have God's biblical glasses on, and make sure you're viewing the world in light of the Bible. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Um, because this is so vital, we did a special book on this for kids ah. called Two Bites. You right? need they to send some of those to me, John.
0: I haven't seen them yet.
1: I know. I'm sorry, but lockdown and all stuff. that. Great so You can order yours, and we'll finally get it to you if we are going to the post days. But Two Bites deals with the real problem of evil and the effect of it in the world going downhill, mm-hmm. so kids can learn change is real, but it's the opposite of evolution and the real problem of sin and death is the connector and God made the world good. So don't blame him for the problems on planet earth.
0: Okay. Um, We've just had one more question come through, and I think we should probably try and very quickly squeeze it in. It's quite an interesting question, and I know you've done an entire presentation on this, John, so I think we should briefly answer this question, and you and I should consider doing this question as a uh, special topic, because there's a lot that can be said about it. Here's the question just down here. Did God allow evil, or did he have to allow evil? Um, What is evil and how does it fit with who God is?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, very good question Usually because we understand the word evil to mean something bad in itself Mm -hmm. right? So if there's evil existing then it must be because if God made everything He had to make evil Now as you just pointed out, God made venom And in a perfect world, the snake used the venom purely to digest things But when in an imperfect world, made that way because we sin, the same venom can kill you. Now, God didn't change that venom to make it to kill you. It just simply is now the good thing used in a bad place. Now, evil, if you ask, is evil something bad? The answer is no. If you want a little lesson on words, it pays to know where words come from. So if you look at evil in English, what is it? Okay, look where the word comes from. You can trace it all the way back to ancient India. Unknown to most British who think, our language is the best (laughs) in the world. It's actually borrowed from many languages and Sanskrit is one of them. And in Sanskrit you'll find that our word evil, follow it back, evil, 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 until you find upel which means up and over the line. So when God created Adam and Eve, he said, here's the line, don't cross it. Now god made the tree of good and the knowledge of good and evil and that was on day six and at the end of day six he said everything he made was very good which included the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now go away and think seriously about that before we do our long seminar that meant the tree of good and evil was all about a line that god drew where he said now you stay on this side and that's safe right he had every right to draw that line In the same way as the local city council has a sign at the edge of the cliff says dangerous cliffs by order of the city council. Don't proceed any further. Now, there's nothing evil or bad about the other side of the cliff. But what's mad is when you go up there and say, oh, I'm going to keep walking and you fall to your death. Now, they have every right to draw that line. And that's what evil is. The line that God tells you for your own benefit. Cross it. And you do so. In fact, now we have, you know, I was born on the wrong side of the line. Yeah, we have statements like that to try and blame somebody else for the errors that we're making.
0: Yeah, it's like, what's the connection between golf and sin? And you'll find that they both have sporting terms there. Uh, when you hit a ball in golf and it flies out of the way, you shout four. Uh, If you shoot an arrow and it flies out of the way, you shout sin. It's an old uh, ancient medieval Anglo-Saxon word that means to miss the mark. Uh, And that gives you a very big clue as to this line as well and to what sin and to what evil is. But, John, I think that's worth uh, a whole program because uh, it really is quite an important thing. So I think we should do that at some point. Um, But thank you very much, for your question. That was great. Uh, we're going to finish the stream here. Now, uh, it's sort of quarter past 10 at night here. Uh, it'll be sort of breakfast time for you over there, John. So, um, I think that we should, uh, yeah, I think we should leave it here now. Thank you all very much for joining. we had a great, uh, chat tonight so a great chat going we've had a good number of people we've got to show you some fabulous collection uh it's going to be very very busy for me for the next few weeks uh we're charging all over the country doing some great stuff and doing some filming and it's going to be great and fun but uh thank you all very much we'll deal with a an evil stream at some point uh in the future john any last words before we sign off
1: Now, I think in that evil stream, Joseph, we should also get Dr. Dine eager as we talk about venoms and poisons and all of those things, how they are very good in themselves. It's the use of them that creates what we call evil or bad.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good good point. Great stuff. Um, Thank you all very much. Goodbye. God bless. Catch us next week uh, as we have another Creation Conversations. God bless you.